finishing up. I, kinda, I, I try to use Labor Day weekend as the weekend to finish whatever chunk of a passage we're in and move then for the kind of the fall run, which I consider kind of through Thanksgiving-ish uh, as another, another movement. So we're in that right now. And one thing that you'll see, and we'll talk about it, uh, I'll talk about it now, we'll talk about it next week, but if you're not in a community group, which is just a place to get together with other believers, discuss the scriptures, often the passage that, has, that we've gone through on Sunday, so you can discuss it more deeply, or go, what, what happened here, or how does this work, that is something that'll be starting, some are starting up this week, but next week we'll be, we'll be having discussion questions for them again, we take the summer off of that, and uh, groups are free to not meet or do what they want, and so... That is beginning, and we're going to have a couple, we'll have four new community group leaders, which is like kind of over two groups. So one couple's leading a, a group that is replacing leadership in a group that is kind of in that young families era, whatever that is. I don't know what age that is anymore. I'm realizing I'm not that anymore, so like I'm, I'm now old, and so yeah, I'm, I, I'm the age I was when I remembered that my parents were old. I'm now that age, so that's, I don't know what that age group is anymore, but I know I've now exceeded it, so there, but there is one for those younger families of the church, and we're getting one started, it'll be a new group uh, on the even younger, want to reach down, so if you're a newlywed here, or you're, you're a single here, or you're engaged here, and you're looking for a place to connect with people in that similar spot, uh, who might have a little more time in a, different, in a different way, we'd love to talk to you about that and just have you get involved. So those are coming, and the thing we will be discussing is not this week, but we'll be discussing the Upper Room Discourse all fall. The Upper Room Discourse is that part of the Gospel of John where Jesus is spending specific time preparing his disciples for what's to come. And John gives us eyewitness testimony about those conversations different than any other gospel we have. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't give us the details that John does there. We get a whole portion of the Gospel of John, chapters 13 through 17, about right before Jesus' betrayal, the, the night of his betrayal. We get a chunk of the Gospel of John just for that. And so that's what we'll be discussing. And so if you're interested in either hearing more about the Gospel of John or some of those parting words to Jesus, for example, we start next week with the washing of the disciples' feet. And what does Jesus teach us in that, and what example does he set? So we'll have really simple ways to discuss the Gospel of John and ways to prepare. So you can check our Facebook page for where to find those groups. We'll keep talking about that, because we'd love for you, if you haven't gotten connected, to find a way to do that. That's there for you. But that's not what this is about. I just wanted to take three minutes and four seconds to do just that for you. And now I want to transition to what you just heard. And again, you heard Bart read to us from John chapter 12. We are finishing the book of signs, which is a kind of a way researchers in the Gospel of John have talked about what the first 12 chapters are. But I want to start with just the religious composition of the world and then talk about the religious composition of the people who live around you. Fair? Start with the religious composition of the world. Studies are only studies, and they're only as good as you want them to be. And it's hard to project where something might be, especially when you're dealing with the religious landscape of the globe. That seems like a hard thing to nail down. But researchers do try to project where things might be over the next 30 years. 
And I want to share with you some of where that might be, even though I doubt in this moment in 30 years ago, oh, this is right where Hans said that was going to be, quoting Pew Research, like that's, I doubt that's where we're going to get. But just something to kind of step back and go, what might that landscape be like? And there's a little chart. I'll read you some of the numbers on the chart. So there's kind of two things. There's a number of people and there's a percent of population. There's two things you're going to see here. Is that the number of Christians over the next 30 years will increase. That's the projection. I can't affirm that, right? Isn't salvation God's work? But, but it is projected that the number of Christians or people who claim Christ will increase over the next 30 years. And we might be like, yeah, you know, mission accomplished. We're getting that great commission done. We feel real good about that. Or you don't care. But by percentage of the population, because the global population is going to increase a good bit too if things continue on the trend they're on. So by percentage of population, it's the exact same. Over the next 30 years, there are no more uh, Christians by percentage of the population as Pew Research was trying to project it. Again, this isn't Bible truth. This is just how people are trying to figure it out. Um, whereas, for example, another dominant and fast-growing religious group, Islam, both the number increases and the percentage of the global population jumps by about six percentage points projected over the next 30 years. So currently, a little less than a quarter, maybe, of the world, and then jumping up to almost a third. That's a pretty big growth. In fact, if you look at the numbers, Islam is one of the fastest-growing religions in the world. Uh, but, you know, you'll see some things where, like, those who are even unaffiliated, disaffiliated with religion, I don't mean just in the States, again, we're an anomaly, but that, that globally, we are a very spiritual people. We as in humans. My son was filling out in the back of the room a, a Connect card. You know how kids do that. They fill out the connection card, and they put all the prayer requests that they want, and, and they fill out the front. And, um, and the front was like, are you a member, regular attender, or guest? And he was like, human being? Like, that's what he put. Human being on the front? Because what do you, if you're, if you're nine, what are you? Um, yeah, th- that is correct. Uh, so we have human beings will grow. The population will grow. But those who are religiously disaffiliated is we're projected to decrease in America we might think that's crazy but when you think about the fact that most people throughout all time are religious in some capacity that does make some sense is that the religious participation of the globe there'll be fewer people by percentage of the population who have no affiliation and you might be going, not based upon my workplace, not based upon my street, not whatever. But, but along with that, you look, you look around and you go, that does kind of make sense. You hear the numbers and go, okay, well, this faith group will increase. The percentage of Christians will not increase. The population is going to increase by however many. We see all those numbers and we try to figure it out. But I just want you now to take that idea and just think about where you live. Just, just your, your apartment, your condo, your house, wherever you are, and just start to think about the people who live around you or above you or below you in your apartment complex. Like, what, are, what is that composition? My guess is, as you think about even those names, that those people very likely aren't connected to a church family in any 
meaningful way. They might go to church, and that might mean I go to church on Christmas and Easter. That might mean I, I grew up in a certain church. That might mean I was baptized in a certain church. We even have like, well, I'm a, you know, there's like secular people say I'm a lapsed Catholic, or I'm a secular Jewish person. Like, like and you kind of hear those words, and they sound like they don't even make sense. You go, well, how can you be secular and like a secular Jewish person? How can you be that? Because isn't that, doesn't that not work? Well, think about the people who live around you. I would, I would guess most people around you don't have faith in the Lord Jesus. They might go, Jesus seems like a good guy. Jesus seems like a, you know, a, a good example to follow. But when it comes to salvation, I'm not, nah, I'm not really too sure on that. And this is what you begin to realize once you just move from a number, you know, if I said 31.4% of the globe's population in 2050 is going to be Christian and 31.4% is now. If I tell you that, you go, okay, well, what does that even mean? But if I just go think about where you live, you go, yeah, okay, I get it. The people around you probably aren't necessarily super committed to faith. And I'm not, I'm not one to say that just because you're here means you are. I understand that. But we're into this part of John where we're getting this treatise almost on unbelief. Unbelief. And why is there so much unbelief? Why do so many people not believe in Jesus? You might be going through the Gospel of John with us to this point. Maybe you've been here for all 30-something sermons. Maybe. Um, But you've gone. If you weren't here on a Sunday, you listened to it later. You got the podcast or you watched the service, whatever you did, because you're super committed to this place. We're really glad Whatever you did, I would guess still, you can hear all that and you go, how do people not believe? How do people not believe? How, do they not, how, how, does my, how does my friend who lives beside me, who doesn't know how life works, who recognizes that he doesn't have it together, that, that, that there are issues that are unresolved in his life or in his family, how does that person not Trust in Jesus to make sense of all that doesn't make sense. How do they not do that? How how does my classmate not run to Jesus when she struggles with her own identity? How does she not do that? How does my my daughter not, not know after all the prayers we've prayed and all the things that we've done, all the ways in which we have, we have, we've tried to show that Jesus is better, how does she still not care? I bet all of you have people that you can name, real names that you can give that fit that description of how do you still not believe. I want to bring a few things to mind there because we realize that unbelief is everywhere. And I mean in, in both ways, unbelief in Jesus as the Messiah and even those little parts of unbelief that we have where we go, even if you're in Christ, you go, I just am not sure that's true. I see this in Scripture and I'm just not sure it's true. Unbelief is everywhere. Sometimes it parades around as, as self-belief or as glad optimism, or people just feel really good 
about how life is. They go, no, no, I believe. I believe in, I believe in people. I believe in, I believe in, in that, that, that we're all good and we can get it done together. I, I'm optimistic that, that things won't get worse. And all of that can be true if we only think about the little corner of the world in which we live. But when we think about eternity, it's not as true as you might think. So we're going to do something today in these last verses of John chapter 12. 36, I say 36 through 50, it's really 36B, but you go, there's no B in my Bible for 36B. So when we say A or B or something like that, we generally mean like the next sentence in the same verse, because verses aren't just a sentence. And so sometimes when, you know, however the, however the person, the, the non-ordained, non-spirit-inspired person is breaking the verses up, you know, sometimes they put the breaks in places where they, they break it after the thought. And so, like, the thought ends, and then the verse keeps going. And so that's why I say 36B, is we're kind of transitioning to another spot in the Gospel of John. And if you even look at your Bible, it probably does something like that, where 36 begins, ends one paragraph, and then the next half begins the next. That's where we'll be. That part of 36B, where Jesus has said some things. The Son of Man is going to be lifted up. He's going to die for the people. And then we have this, it's almost like you can hear the summary. Jesus we understand why people don't believe, and then Jesus states something about belief, and then we move into his time with his disciples. Two questions that we will deal with this morning. Question number one is, why is unbelief so prevalent? Why is it all around? And we're going to look at that first in the Gospel of John, and then in our own lives. And then secondly is, what do we do with it? All right. so why is it so prevalent? And then... What do we do with it if it is so prevalent? Both of those things are going to be questions that we're going to resolve today, hopefully. The first is why is unbelief so prevalent? So we're going to go through a portion of this passage and then address that there at the end. So first, let's go with what is unbelief? Unbelief. I'm going to say it like this. Unbelief is seeing in some capacity who Jesus is and not trusting him. There's something revealed about him that is not being trusted. And the reason that I would say that is because you actually look at verse 37. For though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So unbelief being the, the, rec- the, the seeing in some capacity who Jesus is and the rejecting of that world. That's what unbelief is. It's not, um, it's not about understanding. It's about trusting. Because they did see things, and they might even on a, on a multiple choice test go, I saw Jesus do this. I saw Jesus do this. I saw Jesus raise Lazarus. I saw Jesus heal this person. I saw Jesus teach in this way. I saw Jesus use the scriptures to explain something about himself. They could probably answer some questions about what he's doing, but they still don't believe. It's the seeing, but not trusting, that is unbelief. In Jesus' time, there's a unique reason for such prevalent unbelief. And the unique reason is a part of what we would call salvation history, which is what is God doing in a unique moment in time? And what was God doing in a unique moment in time but fulfilling scripture from Isaiah? So in Jesus' time, 
part of the national unbelief of the nation of Israel was to fulfill what Isaiah wrote in both Isaiah 53.1 and Isaiah 6.10, speaking about how people do not reject the messenger of the Lord or the word of the Lord or the vision of the Lord. And so we see in verse 38, this was done so the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The first one is, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. If you're doing our memory work with us together in our reading plan, you, you might have stumbled through Isaiah 53.1 recently uh, like I did in my discipleship group. I'm like, hold on guys, I'm going I'm to get it. I'm going to get it. Give me one more, give me another chance. Let me, let me say it again. What's that word? What's that word? Right? And you, it's like, that's how I always do the memory work. And then, you know, Jason's like, hold on, I got it. Like he always just recites it like it's nothing. And so... I feel really good about myself when you know, the members correcting the pastor on what the memory verse the pastor set up was. Every time I got my Dwell app on repeat, driving to Starbucks just to be sure I can get it real good, and I still mess it up. Isaiah 53 is the servant song. It's, it might be for the Christian the most significant servant song, although Isaiah has several servant songs. Just a hashtag or you know, pay attention promo for the Isaiah course that'll start Wednesday, 6.30 for the, uh, for the guys AM and 6.30 PM for the ladies Wednesdays up here because we'll get to read some of those servant songs and see what, how Jesus is revealed through Isaiah. And so we have this servant song and part of the servant the suffering servant, who we would say is Jesus the Messiah. Part of the recognition of the suffering servant or the, the ministry of the suffering servant is that people didn't believe in him. They saw him, but they didn't see him. They didn't trust him. Who has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said... This is from chapter 6, Isaiah 6.10. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes, talk about unbelief, see with their eyes, understand with their heart, turn, and I would heal them. This is, I understand if you're going to have a problem with what we just read. Wait a minute, so did they not believe or could they not believe? You hear that? Because the first verse makes it sound like who believes it? And then the second quote of Isaiah makes it sound like, who could have believed it? Like there's this group who didn't believe it, but did they not believe it because they could not believe it? Did God have some active way of doing this? So their hearts are hardened because they did not believe, and they did not believe because their hearts were hardened. That doesn't, that doesn't seem consistent. Well... In the scope of Isaiah, we would call this it's a funky word. You can write it in your Bible if you're there in Isaiah 53 or Isaiah 6. A, a judicial hardening, which is like, it's a word we only use when we preach, okay? So it's a preacher word, judicial hardening, which is like the nation of Israel was hardened in part so the message of the Messiah might be heralded to all nations. It was a part of God's plan and what he was working out throughout history. But, but there's this pattern that we see where you go, well, hold on, who's in charge of the non-belief? And it sounds like John, quoting Isaiah, makes it, I'll use the term fault, if you're like, who's at fault? 
is that the nation is at fault and God is at fault? Is it the person or the God? Well, I'm going to just go through a couple of passages where you do see that there is this dynamic of people acting in a certain way and then God granting them the full effects of that action. Okay? Pharaoh. Remember Pharaoh? We went through Exodus together. And we read both passages in, in, in the book of Exodus of Pharaoh hardened his heart and God hardened his heart. We see both of those. Pharaoh disbelieved and Pharaoh's heart was hardened. There's active and passive hardening of Pharaoh's heart. We also, though, see in the Old Testament of the consequence of going after other gods. God says to the nation, if you go after other gods and you pursue their idols and you live life like those nations with other religions and other little g-gods, if you do that, it's not going to go well for you and you will be brought out of the land and brought into captivity. You will be punished for your disbelief. And so it's like, if you do this, then it's going to get worse for you. If you live in this way, then it's going to get worse. In the book of Romans, let's jump into the New Testament. We go, well, is this only an Old Testament thing? Let's jump into the New Testament for a moment. Romans chapter 1, the apostle Paul, a man who had, a Jewish man who understood the idea of hardening, says this. He says after discussing the way in which people rebel against God, the way in which they reject the revelation of God, they say, I don't want to have anything to do with God. He says, so God gave them over. God gave them over. And you go, what does it mean to be given over? And I would put it like this, that it, it, is, the, it is the letting, it's the, it is the permission of God, you could say, or the action of God to let the full effect of that trajectory be felt by those people. So we live with this little bit here. We are responsible for our condition and nothing is outside of God's purview. Okay? We're responsible for God's condition, but God is also acting in that condition. I mean, think about it. For, for those of you today who are Christians, and I say, well, when did you believe? And maybe you have a specific time that you remember, you recall. It was at this time that I heard the gospel. My question to you is, was that the first time you heard it? For many, it's like the second, third, fifth, 20th, 25th, 30th. It comes on the 45 years of prayer by mom or dad. And then finally, like, I get it. And it's like you'd never heard it before. You've ever had that experience? We're like, how come the thing I've always heard, I'm only now hearing? It's because salvation is God's. How come a year prior or two years prior or five years prior when you heard the same message, nothing happened? Nothing happened. If we think salvation or even belief and disbelief is ultimately on us, then it's because you did something wrong five years ago that prevented you from believing then. You weren't listening enough. You weren't attentive enough. You weren't, right? And if that's the case, we're all doomed because our phones have ruined us. We're like, I don't listen to anything. All I do is wonder who's texting me right now or what, the, what update's being given by a friend. And so we have to understand that we got ourselves to where we are. 
And God is not inactive in that process as well. Now, I say this to those uh, theologians who struggle with that idea. Or even if you don't think you're a theologian, you probably are. You all have opinions about God, right? If you even say God does not exist, that is a theological statement. So you're all theologians today. This tension that we feel is not one that I'm ever going to ask you to resolve. Maturity in Christ is sometimes going, I got to hold both of these things. And they're both true. I got me here. And God's not inactive. And when salvation happens by God's grace, I believed, but God did it. We'll say it in the other direction too, won't we? Like, I believed, I trust in Jesus, but it was really God who revealed himself to me. It was God who made himself known. That's why, even though I've heard it forever, I'm only hearing it now. That's why, even though I've been told this and this has been prayed over me, you might even have a date in a Bible where you came forward and said, I believe, and you went another 15 years and nothing happened. And you look at that date and you're like, I think that date was just the date. That's just the date, a date I walked forward somewhere. That's really what that is. It's just that, you know, well, I know that on September 12th, I walked forward. Now, I say that because for the Christian, we don't need to resolve every tension. But we should, with awe and reverence, and I would even say, it's funny to use this word, but deference to a holy God, say, I'm going to let him be him, and I'm not going to try and interfere even though we interfere every day, or we try to. So John is going, why did they disbelieve? Well, they disbelieved because Isaiah said they would. And part of their disbelief is the further hardening of the Lord that they will not believe, or they would turn. This, though, is part of a greater plan that we see of God bringing more people to himself. Every tribe and tongue and language. So it is a part of the work of Jesus that we were headed towards his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, sending of the Spirit. That, that, that it, there was moving in a direction. And that direction required a certain response to the Messiah of disbelief. God, in my class I'll say this regularly, God intervenes to fix our problems. This is not to say that the disbelief, I can't say how long the disbelief lasted, but the national unbelief of the nation for this moment was to, to, to as a, in part, to get the Messiah, to get Jesus to the destination that he had set his heart toward that was designed from before eternity. That isn't to say that belief was outside of the realm of all these people forever. That's, that's where we get into trouble. Is we try to go, well, how long is the disbelief? How long is the unbelief? Is it for their entire life? Is it for this? And here's the thing, you don't know. You don't know. If you knew, if we knew, we would just assume everybody's doomed. I'm good, but everybody else is doomed. Now, I love what happens after that. We recognize God is God and we are not. But then John gives us this comment. 
Verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. This is cool. I just want to make this comment about the Bible and Isaiah and Father, Son, and Spirit. Give me a moment. Humor me. In some way, I don't think Isaiah saw Jesus, meaning like, oh, that's the one who's going to die for our sins and rise from the grave because the incarnation hadn't happened yet. So the Son of God did not have form. There was not some kind of form where you went, oh, this is, this is Jesus. He looks like a man born in you know, 0 AD or whatever year you want to put on there. Uh, so, so it's not that. But what John is letting us in on is that the visible manifestation of God that Isaiah saw was the Son. John said these things, or Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, his representation. And, and what do we see Jesus saying? He said it last week. He said it all throughout John. Is that glorify yourself in me, Father. Uh, you know, and what did he say last week? I have glorified it and I will glorify it. If that Jesus, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection glorify God in that they make God seen, the Father seen in this world. You see God through the Son. The heart of the Father, the life of the Father, because Jesus, the Son, and the Father are one. They're in lockstep. And so when John gives this comment, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. I think John is letting us in. He's giving us a, like Isaiah saw something about God and he was speaking about the vision that he had. And that glory and that interaction was with the Son, and he was seeing something there. That is consistent in the sense that any time that you could say God is made manifest to the people, even in the Old Testament, it comes through the agency of the Son because the Son, remember chapter 1 of the Gospel of John? In the beginning was the what? Word. Because, yeah, word. And so, so where God is made manifest in a way that his people can understand, there is an argument to be made that it has always been the Son working. It's always been the Son of God working to make God manifest. Now that is, a, that is, an, that is a, an interpretive understanding that comes as you see the fulfillment of the New Testament, the continuation of the New Testament. So that's why John doesn't go, Isaiah clearly saw the Son and understood the whole scope of salvation in that moment. I'm not sure he did. But Isaiah spoke the way he did because he saw the glory of God. And John is letting us know that glory is his, Jesus. Like that's what he was able to see. So, unbelief is real in, the, in this time because it's specifically fulfilling a part of Old Testament prophecy that was required to lead to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But why is it around today? Because that happened, right? We, the death, burial, and resurrection happened. And so I don't think that you're not believing or your friend's not believing because Isaiah said it. I think that Isaiah said it for a specific time and place that John is saying in order to fulfill something. And so I don't then go to you and go, well, you don't believe because Isaiah, because you're fulfilling Isaiah too. I don't, I don't look at it like that. I look at it more specifically uh, to go, well, why is unbelief here? If that was, so that the word might be fulfilled in Isaiah, this happened, then I, I have a hard time then applying that exact same reality to any time I see unbelief.
oh, well, Isaiah says. That's why you don't believe, because Isaiah said it. You know, that, that feels like a weird application of something that uniquely applied to Jesus in that time. But then let's just, let's just go up one rung up the ladder of abstraction. What do we see? What is unbelief? The rejection of God's truth and what has been revealed. The inability to trust in it. And when you see that, you recognize that unbelief is prevalent today. Why? Because the world opposes Jesus. In fact, the, the, the thread of unbelief is consistent even if it's not because we're fulfilling Isaiah now. It's because men, women, and children, people reject the truth. That's why unbelief is prevalent. And it's both for our salvation and it is for even for the Christian in the room, those moments where you know what God has revealed and you simply do not want to do it. Because the world has a way, and that way says that its way is superior to God. And so when you read, I know we all, uh, we all live in different spots, but when you le- read, for example... Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Or you read about children submitting to parents. um, Or something of that nature in family life, we could say. I know what it says, I just don't believe it. You ever even use that phrase? I know what it says, I just don't believe it. I just won't do it. That's again what the world does. The world goes, my way of understanding is better than God's way of understanding. So the problem with unbelief is the same. We don't believe because we think we're better than God. We think we know better than God. We think we live more rightly than God. We just don't give God the place that God is due. That's why it persists. Because we are fallen people who are consumed with thinking that we're better. It is the same problem, deeply rooted in who we are, even if it's not the exact fulfillment of Isaiah. It is the same as we see in Romans 1. Therefore, God gave them over. You want to live like that? Live like that. You think that's the best way to go? Why don't you go ahead and try it a little longer? That pattern is consistent in life, and those are the people You and me, for whom Jesus came to die. That unbelief might become belief. That a lack of trust in who God is becomes a trust in who God is. That when we have gotten to the end of ourselves and our systems and our strategies and our ways do not work, we look and we see the work of the Son and we go, where did that come from? Where, where did that come? Where was that? Has it ever left? Has the message of the gospel ever left? No, it's been there. For every person in the room, it has been there. But very often we just reject it. We reject it because we feel as if our ways of understanding how the world works are better. That has been going on from the beginning. 
that understanding of unbelief has been going on from the beginning. Wasn't that the lie even in the garden? Did God really say? And it has just manifested itself differently in every human heart, and in every era, in every generation, and in every family. Is that really what God said? And I have been with people who say, I know what God has said. I'm not interested. I'm like, that's a pretty, that's a pretty bold statement to make. I know what God has said. I don't care. I'm like, I guess I'm glad that you're being honest. I, I, I mean, if we value honesty, that's a good thing. Also, seems like a pretty terrible place to be. I know it's best, I just don't care. I, I'm, I understand what it is, but I, I'm just happy living in my sin. This is just what I want. Okay. I'm not, I can't intervene. And that's when you realize, again, the need that salvation is a work of God, it's not a work of man's. I can't, I can't change that heart. I can't change. I could, I could sit and reason and wonder and pray and labor and go, how can I help you understand why that's a terrible thing to say? Like, hey, we could go for hours around it, couldn't we? I mean, we could go for hours about, well, I, just, I have this problem with God and this problem with God and this problem with God. And we could go through all those problems and somebody could leave the table and go, honestly, I still just don't care. And that's when you realize that salvation is not something that you can only reason someone toward. You just can't get them there by dismantling an argument. And they go, oh yeah, of course, that's of course. Because human hearts are weird. They're depraved and they're weird. You know that, right? Like, like you live that because you have to live with yourself. You get it. You're like, yeah, I know there's always good things that I just really hate to do. Unbelief is prevalent. Sometimes I think we are benefited by just calling it what it is. No, you're not struggling with an idea. I'm just struggling with some sin right now. I'm like, no, you're not struggling with that sin. You seem like to have just given yourself over to the sin. That's not a struggle. That is a surrender. So maybe if we actually use that language, like, honestly, I just don't believe it. I don't believe that. Now, you could say, I, I'm struggling to believe it, like the man who says to Jesus, I believe, help me in my unbelief. That's a humble posture. But sometimes it's not a struggle. You're not struggling with anything. You've just rejected what's true. You don't sugarcoat that thing. You just go, this is where I am. I remember the time, and I, I think I've shared this before, but a, a friend of mine, this was years back, and she said this, and it stuck with me. The weirdest thing stick with me. But she goes, I read 1 Corinthians 13 and what love was. You've heard me say this. And I realized in that moment that I don't love my mother. I do not love her. There was a long history there, a lot of bitterness. But she goes, I read 1 Corinthians 13. I saw the demonstration of love. And I was none of those things toward mom. That's a pretty, I mean, that's a serious thing to say, but also a recognition of what God has revealed and where the human heart is. And she was saying it not to go, and I'm just going to stay here, but to, to realize, look at how far I have to go. But what fills in that gap? The grace of Jesus. The grace of Jesus. 
Now, there is a moment here in the Gospel of John. There is a moment in the Gospel of John, and you read verses 42 and 43, where there's always a remnant. Remember that phrase, there's always some evidence of belief. And John gives it to us, but it's bizarre. He gives us this bizarre, confusing part, like unbelief, unbelief, unbelief. This is why they didn't do it. And then in verses 42 and 43, he says, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities, be the, the Jewish religious authorities, believed in him, But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. I think that would mean say it out loud. They wouldn't state it in a matter that they would all agree with. So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. And then look at verse 43. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And so John gives this kind of treatise of unbelief. This is why they didn't believe, because they rejected the revelation of God, specifically then to fulfill what was written in Isaiah, specifically for us, because we just see what God has revealed, and we say, not dog, we just move on. And then he gives this comment of this confusing look of belief. Nevertheless, which seems to be stated in contrast to why they didn't believe, nevertheless, some did believe But they didn't say it because they feared being put out of the synagogue because they liked the praise of man. Now, there's a comfort in this and there's a challenge. I want to give you both of those, the comfort and the challenge. The comfort is good. Then my belief belief will demonstrate itself imperfectly. Because sometimes I think we get really worried that if I don't just believe perfectly enough, I'm not always bold and I'm not always doing the right thing and saying the right thing. But I mean, students in the room, have you ever been standing there? I, I know the adult answer is yes. But students in the room, you ever known what you're supposed to do in a moment? Like you, you have the opportunity to say something for the Lord and you're just kind of like, Meh. Right? I'm not going to do it. I don't want to say it. It's a weird time. Like we're in the locker room and I don't want to go, hey, Jesus the Lord, while I'm standing in my underwear. Like that feels weird. And I don't, I don't want to have that conversation in this moment, even though it seems to be fitting. Well, what is that in the moment? What do you love? I love the praise of man, the impression men have of me, more than the praise of God, the glory that comes from that relationship. I'm valuing those around me more than I'm valuing what God says about me. We all do this, don't we? It's not there. It's in some other environment where you're like, I don't, I don't know if my neighbors even know I'm a Christian. And if I tell them, they might go, what? Like they might be shocked because they see how I live and they hear our arguments. And like they come over sometimes and I'm not nice and our house is a mess and everything's kind of grrr. And, 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 and I need to let them know about Jesus? No thanks. I would rather them think I'm like an atheist. Make them look bad. Make the atheist look bad. Versus say I'm a Christian and then make the Christians look bad. But what is that again? That is the praise, the glory that comes from man. I'm afraid of what they might think of me if I say it. The comfort I have is that unbelief, or belief, I'll put it there, I'm sorry, not unbelief. Belief operates, it kind of in flux. I don't mean it flips into unbelief. What I mean is, there are probably days where you are believing, believing more strongly than others. 
There are times in your day or your week or your month where things do line up better and you have walked more closely with the Lord and his truth is more in your heart and, and, and more of your mind and your thoughts are going to him and you are comfortable speaking about him and you're not even as concerned about the flesh. And then there are times when all you have been is up in your feelings and the only thing you're worried about is what other people think about you. And this is important, is that our status with Jesus doesn't change because our belief has wavered. Because he's the one who holds us. Remember what he said? No one takes them out of my father's hand. No one takes them out of my hand. So even if the belief is not, I don't think John is setting this up as an example, to say these people love the praise of men more than the praise of God, I don't think that's a good thing. Not a good thing. But to realize that belief will at times be strong. At times, it might be weaker. And where might that show up? Trial, trauma, struggle, how could God, where is God? All of those things that start to bubble up and we start to doubt or wonder about who God is and if he's good. All those things that start to creep into our hearts. That's what. So I don't think John is setting this up as an example, but there's some comfort to know that if, if every day I'm not 100 out of 100 on my belief points, it doesn't change that I belong to God. Now, the challenge or the, or the, toward us is this isn't the example. We have seen other examples of what faith is, and it doesn't often come from the religious leadership, does it? It comes from the many times married Samaritan woman who says, come hear about a man who knows everything about me. Come listen to this man, Jesus. It even comes in a small way, and he works through it, and he's still getting there, like a man like Nicodemus. He's like, there are a number of us, because John tipped us off this, there are a number of us who think you are from God. Because no one could do what you're doing otherwise. And even then, Jesus challenges his belief and goes, how come you don't know this? How come you can't make this connection? It comes in the example of John the Baptist who testifies about Jesus and loses his life for Jesus to recognize who Jesus is and to declare to those around him who Jesus is. This is the one. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So John does not give us this as an example to follow. To go, oh, so it's good to, to believe but to wish that other people liked you more than, yeah, yeah to, to find more identity in your relationship with people than in your relationship with God. Nope, not a good thing. But it still persists at times. We'll learn next week. What do we do with that? When we realize that we've fallen, we've stumbled, we've sinned, we've had disbelief. What do we do with that? What mechanism do we have when our unbelief is not salvific in the sense that it doesn't, it's not about saving or not saving, but it still causes tension and disharmony in our relationship with God? So yes, there is some level of belief. No, it is not an example. This is what I would say with, what do we do with unbelief? The first one is what is it? That's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time because that's what we live in. What do we do with it? I think you get the answer. You believe in what is true. 
And believing in what is true means believing in who is true, the Lord Jesus. This is why this book of signs ends the way that it does, with a statement about Jesus, made by Jesus. Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in him, in me, but in him who sent me. So belief is the dominant idea in verse 44. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Which is in contrast to what we read in Isaiah, right? That they couldn't see him. Whoever believes, believes in the one who sent me. Whoever sees me, sees the one who sent me. I have come into this world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my word, does not keep them. I do not judge, for I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world, which is the mission that the incarnate Son of God is on at this time. I came to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words, which again shows our action in it, even though John just pointed to Isaiah, the one who rejects. People reject. Has a judge, the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So you notice that judgment comes now later. So I don't judge because I'm here to save. You will be judged though for your unbelief. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say therefore I say as the Father had told me. So I will give you a response for now and a discipline for your time with the Lord. The response for now is to believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus from this passage as the one sent from the Father. Believe in Jesus as the one who brings light to darkness. Believe in Jesus as the one who comes to save and not to judge, knowing that judgment is to come. Believe in Jesus is the challenge. The discipline then, if we recognize that belief is God's work ultimately. What do I do? I still, it doesn't matter how long it has been, how many years you have done this, pray for those who live in unbelief. Pray for those who live in unbelief because you cannot reason them out of their unbelief. You can't just argue with them until they believe. So pray. We have those live, work, and play prayer cards that give us just ways to think about people, naming people in our lives that we can pray for. But I would say disciplined, regular prayer for people in your life who don't know Jesus. Because we can't do anything with unbelief. We can't, we can't turn unbelief into belief. Only God can. So what can we do? We can beg of God to change the condition of human hearts. And hopefully anticipate that he will. That's what we can do. So let's do it. Pray with me. Wherever you are, whatever you're going through, I want you to take just 10 seconds right now. Think about those people in your life who struggle with unbelief keeping them from salvation.